Hello, and welcome to the Extension Experience Podcast with your hosts, Josh Bouchong, Trent Malachik, and Dana Zook. Here you'll find insights into Oklahoma agriculture from West Area Specialists employed by Oklahoma State University Extension. Their perspectives come from assisting county educators and producers in the areas of agronomy, animal science, and economics. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the Extension Experience Podcast. I'm Dana Zook. Today we are at the State Line Sheep and Goat Conference. It's a little mini conference we had in Cherokee, Oklahoma, here in Alfalfa County. And there were several excellent presentations given today. And I invited a couple of the speakers to give some of their summaries of their presentations. Let me introduce a couple of those people. They're with OSU, so Dr. Laura Goodman, Extension Rangeland Specialist. And then we have Cooper Sherrill, and he works for OSU as an assistant extension specialist, kind of in the fire, the goats, everything. I'm a catch-all. You're a (laughs) catch-all. He does all the cool stuff, I think. You'll hear about that here in a minute. Welcome, Cooper and Laura. So I'm going to let both of you just give kind of your general background of how you came to Oklahoma State, what you do, and where you're from, and all that. So Laura, you go first. I'm originally from Minnesota, um, and when I was looking at universities, I wanted to try somewhere completely different, um, but I was looking at studying agronomy, so I I ended up at a school in Texas. I actually went to a school called Abilene Christian University, and when I was studying agronomy there, I became really interested in the classes I was taking on rangeland management because of kind of the integration of animal science and and um, ecology and the plant science. And so that's where I ended up focusing. After Abilene, I worked for a number of years on some different ranches and some other jobs. And, um, and then I went back to school for grad school at New Mexico State for both my master's and my PhD. I've been in Oklahoma since 2015 as the range extension specialist and I I teach some classes on campus and have some different research projects that are going on too. You make it sound so simple. I think you're very busy. (laughs) (laughs) There's there's so many cool things to work on in Oklahoma and um, so yeah I have I do have a hard time saying no. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay Cooper tell us your story. So I'm originally from uh, a little town called Burbank, Oklahoma. It's in between Ponca City and Pahuska in Osage County. Uh, I grew up on a basically a wheat farm and a cattle ranch. And everything we ran the cattle on was native grass, so I've been involved in prairie management since I can remember. Early on, started helping a lot of people with their prescribed burns, and that's, I mean, honestly, that it's a lot of fun. So... When I got to college, um, able to learn from John Weir, it's been enjoyable. I got both of my degrees, my bachelor's and my master's from OSU. My bachelor's is in wildlife ecology and management, and master's was in range management. And largely what I looked at there was Cerise Lespedeza. And that's a big problem here. So you had a lot to look at, right? There, there's <laughs> a job security. <laughs> There's, there's plenty of it. Yeah. And so we'll talk about your kind of position in the Prairie Project here in a little bit, but you you play a key role in that too as well. Yeah. Right. Okay. So uh, Laura covered basically the Prairie Project today, mm-hmm. and but she also talked a lot about burning. So let's just start and discuss the historic change of hoodie plant encroachment across the plains. Yeah. Yeah. So... 
across the Great Plains, but especially in the Southern Great Plains here in Oklahoma and across Texas, we have a, a lot of different tree species that are growing in areas that were historically um, prairie. That's been happening for about 100 years. It's kicked it up a notch um, here in the last uh, 40 or 50 years. We had a lot of um, areas where we planted shelter belts, you know, especially here in Western Oklahoma, we had areas where we planted black locust, honey locust, uh, Western soapberry. Um, but we also have trees that were naturally here that have just kind of moved out of where they normally were. And so those would be things like cottonwoods that normally grew near creeks and now are just kind of growing um, in lots of upland areas where they really would never have been. Um, and then the, the the main offender, of course, is eastern red cedar in most of Oklahoma. But in the southern part of the state, like in the Arbuckles, we have um, ash juniper or blueberry juniper, a close relative. And then we also have redberry juniper in the southwest part of the state. And those are the two kind of main offenders that we have down um, across Texas. But, you know, this is the, the juniper issue is a much larger problem just across the West. So there mm -hmm. are native species um, of juniper that have started growing in lots of areas in most of the Western states. It's different species of juniper depending on what state you're in, but it's happening all over the place. And so these have negative impacts on, on our livestock production for sure. Um, but also on the, the species, wildlife species that depend on prairies specifically. And so um, we actually know now that prairies are the most endangered ecosystems in the world. And um, definitely in North America, the tall grass prairie ecosystem is um, the most endangered. And so we have different ways of managing that. And a lot of what we've done has been using mechanical control. You know, the, the reason that these trees are growing in the locations that they are is that there's a lot less fire happening, especially across the Great Plains. The Great Plains prairies were really only staying prairies historically because of the fire that was coming across here and, and um, killing, you know, new uh, seedlings and saplings. Um, and just really preventing the spread. There weren't very many seed sources because these trees were just never allowed to survive in most of these locations. The only places they really lived were areas that wouldn't burn. And and I think you mentioned every four to six years is how often the prairie would burn. Yeah, across Oklahoma, the fire, we know that the historic fire return interval was like, you know, any given location across the state was burning every four to six years. And so um, when it, when you wait longer than that, those plants can get to a point where we just really can't kill them um, easily using fire and we end up having to use mechanical approaches. But of course, the panhandle, it was a little bit longer than that because of course, it just doesn't, it doesn't rain as much there. They mm -hmm. don't grow as much fuel. So, but yeah, a lot of fire was happening. <laughs> also, you said maybe um, difference in grazing species over time. Of course, public encroachment, right? We 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 can't burn everywhere we that that burned before. We don't of want course. to burn up people's um, structures and and um, but but yeah, there was there's there's a lot less fire that's happening. We have people living in a lot of different places. Mm -hmm. We there there were a lot of other wildlife species that were eating other things. So cattle have kind of replaced bison. But we knew we know that there were elk and pronghorn found across the state. 
and in addition to you know white-tailed deer so those species were um they they would have been eating different plants they would have been eating more broadleaves and and woody plants than than the bison would have been and more than what our cattle would are doing now and so as we graze most of our acreage in Oklahoma with cattle, we don't have those plants being used much by the livestock that we that we um, run. Mm-hmm. So saying that, in current times, I guess we can say, yeah. you know, we, we run cattle. Of course, we have some goat production. We have lots of livestock production. How do we balance the wanting have to have this piece of land to graze, mm-hmm. but also controlling all these species that take over the pasture. Mm-hmm. How do we balance all of that to, to make it a productive but and healthy ecosystem? Well, so that was kind of the idea behind the, the impetus of this project called the Prairie Project um, was that we have to find solutions and economical solutions. And the research that, you know, the data that we've collected over um, the last 20, 30 years has shown we've spent a lot of money on trying to control woody plants from using mechanical control, but oftentimes it's not followed up with prescribed fire to to stop it from happening again, the woody encroachment. And so then we end up spending that money again and again and again, and we aren't really solving the problem. We just know that we're not getting to enough acres um, with that approach. And so part of the idea with the Prairie Project was let's help land managers figure out strategies that are uh, that are the least expen- least expensive and also that will, you know, kind of change the culture of how we manage these lands, but give them a couple, some choices of different approaches. And then our, what with our research, we've kind of taken the, the maximum <laughs> approach with combining um, using goats and prescribe fire in the same pastures to try to make the biggest impact we could um, with with the pastures that we have. Okay, so goats were just your first idea? Or, <laughs> I mean, was this partly part of your idea, Cooper? Were you in on this? Or how did this come about? Because this doesn't seem like it would be the first thought. It's definitely not, not a new thought. And I know that... Uh... My other supervisor, Dr. Fullendorf, he's been talking about trying to get goats uh, research done at OSU for years. And I think everything just kind of happened at the right time. And then they had the ability to apply for this uh, USDA NIFA grant, uh, and they got it. And then they hired me. (laughs) Good for you. I mean, that's great. I I, need a goat expert. (laughs) Yes. So not only do you know about fire, but you also know a lot about goats. I know about goats, yep. Yeah, you have a you have your own herd, and that's I've got my own herd, and then I uh, run the research herd that that we're talking about here okay. with the Prairie Project at OSU. Okay, and we'll in a, in a future episode we'll talk to Cooper a little bit more about some of those really cool things he does within that. All the listeners know that I'm not a goat person. <laughs> um, I'm not. It's not that I don't want to be. I just have never been that way. I had sheep when I was growing up, but that was not definitely not grazing that way. But Let's just talk generally. How do you work goats into a native grass system? So when we were when we were talking about this project, we started working. We were, were working with um, quite a few researchers and extension folks at Texas A&M and Texas AgriLife. And you know, there's been a lot of goat research that has come out of um, the Sonora Station and in different parts of, of West Texas. And goats there have been used um, without fire and and with fire in some in some instances. 
for quite a long time. And there's studies where they've looked at the effects of goat, um, goat grazing on pastures for over 40 or 50 years. And so we knew, we know that you can use goats successfully to manage woody vegetation. And so when we were developing the idea of the grant, part of it came out of the fact that we, in certain parts of like, so in Kansas and parts of Oklahoma, there's already this fire culture of like using prescribed fire um, on rangelands. And in Texas, there's already this mixed species or um, sheep goat culture of using those animals for woody plants. And so we thought, well, how can we help to kind of overcome the, the, the cultural issues of like, well, we don't do sheep or goats here, or we don't do fire here. And how can we bring ranchers together to look at how the the ways that those that those things can be used in other systems? And mm-hmm. so our collaboration with them, they're they're helping us with with figuring out how to do the do the goat management. Um, and you know they already had folks doing prescribed fires uh, research and extension, but we've we've done a lot of patch burn grazing specifically mm-hmm. um, here at at Oklahoma State. That's been going on since 1999. So. So we wanted to come together to try to figure out how this worked. You can use goats successfully for managing woody vegetation without fire. The benefit of using fire is that you can um, use it to make plants re-sprout. So almost all of the woody plants that we have um, re-sprout if you top kill them, except for eastern red cedar, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't. But almost everything else that we have that grows in Oklahoma is going to re-sprout if you cut it off. Um, or if you kill it, top kill it with a fire. With goats, that's good because we can make them re-sprout and then all of that is feed that's available to the goats to eat. The combination of goats plus fire just makes a lot of sense in rangeland pastures. Rangelands are perfect pastures for goats. There's, you know, we, we did a post on our social media about how how many goats um, are produced in Oklahoma. And we're actually, I think it was fourth in the nation, isn't yep, that right? number four. And so we have a lot of goats in this state. That's surprising. I, I know. That's really cool. I guess I didn't even know that. Yeah. Um, well, Cooper worked on that quite a bit. Um, we were pretty surprised. I guess I was surprised. I don't know about you, Cooper, but I was surprised <laughs> that we had that many goats here in Oklahoma. Uh, there's not a lot of goats right now that's being grazed out on larger native pastures. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that's something that we'll, we'll come, we'll come to see more of that, uh, especially with the goat prices as they go mm-hmm. even higher. Well, and there's so many benefits of multi-species grazing. I think that people are just, just figuring out. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think w- with your guys's project, they're really gonna, it's a lot of those things are going to come to light. And, and in addition to all this stuff, it really helps, in my opinion, it helps cattle producers, make a little bit extra money. Whether you mean whether you're not using herbicide or that sort of thing, you're minimizing that part of it um, to manage some of these woody plants. Um, but you're also raising a crop of goats mm-hmm. at the same time. So I I I want to talk about the economics of that um, in our next episode. But before, you know, let's let's talk the Prairie Project. Mm-hmm. So it's focused and patch burning is a big part of that, yeah. right? Right. Okay. So define patch burning for um, the listeners. So with patch burning, we burn um, just a portion of the pasture. And so that could be a third of the pasture, a fourth, a sixth. And then we put animals in there immediately so that they have access to the regrowth on the burn patches. 
And what happens is the the regrowth that happens after fire is really, really attractive to the animals because it's really high quality forage that's all growing grouped together. Here's a huge patch of, you know, really highly palatable forage. And so animals will spend a lot of time on those burn patches. And so then subsequently we'll burn another patch and we'll move animals around the pasture without the use of any additional interior fences just by attracting them to different areas. And so the areas that are burned and then grazed, if you are burning in three patches in that pasture, they won't be returned to to any significant extent until you burn it again, which would be, you know, and you'd have two more years of rest and then you'd burn it in the next year. So this provides rest in these pastures um, and more than one growing season of rest it's allowing those plants to um, grow really vigorously. We know that fire can promote many of our warm season native grasses here in Oklahoma because it just developed with so much fire. Mm -hmm. And so that rest combined with the fire effects can be really beneficial. And it's providing really high quality feed for the livestock in, in addition. So we stock it normally, we use the normal stocking rates that we would stock these pastures that we've calculated that are sustainable, um, but we just, it, the animals really have to be in there immediately. Otherwise, you can lose the attractiveness of the regrowth as it as it grows and ages. So that's really important. And so you also said that it was it also helps with future burns. So allowing some of that vegetation to grow up for the fine fuel, right? Is that the yeah, right we, terminology there? Yeah. Yeah. When the animals give these different patches a longer period of rest, we're able to accumulate more fine fuel so that we can have a more effective fire for the brush control. So Cooper, tell us a little bit about how the goats are kind of set up to work in the patch burning system. Sure. So what we've got going on uh, there at our research pastures there in Stillwater, there's three 120-acre pastures. They all share a common corner, which makes it pretty handy. Within each of those pastures, there's 10 heifers, uh, growing replacement heifers that are out there as well. Uh, we've got two livestock guardian dogs per pasture. And for the most part, the goats are, are ran and managed quite similarly to the cattle, which is very hands-off. It's a mindset change, but it's not as big as some people make it out to be. They're not real high-maintenance animals. Producers need to know that maybe, you know, just like you would leave your cattle out there to kind of do their own thing. They're yeah. not like an extra, they don't need extra pampering or anything. And you don't have really extra shelter there's or anything for no, the animals either, right? There's, there's no shelter. And they can they can be as high-maintenance as you want them to be. Okay. Um, and and the, right, the right goats can be ran and thought of from a management standpoint quite similarly to cattle. Like we said, there, there's no shelter out here, no little barns. They're they're real real livestock out there working for us. Okay. They kid. Uh, we're gonna have our kidding seasons. It's typically gonna be like the second week in April, and that matches uh, the forage quality time period really well with their nutritional demands. After the burns that you've done. Yeah. Yeah. So, what do you do? to know or how do you measure where the goats are actually grazing because that's a unique part about of this so i think we have we got several uh methods to do that and the best one is our gps collars in each pasture like i said we have 20 goats and three of them are outfitted with a gps collar um, for the most part 
using our data and then just some personal observations through myself and others. For the most part, the herd stays together. Uh, goats are really, really gregarious. So if you know where those three are, chances are most of the other goats are pretty close by. But then to monitor some of the things that they're doing and the vegetation changes that we have, there are quite a few grazing exclosures around Cerecia, Blackberry, and Sumac, both smooth and winged. And then there is some permanent vegetation monitoring plots uh, throughout all these patches too that, that we go back and measure each year and, and see how things are changing. And so you actually had some pictures in your presentation, Laura, of where the goats were actually stripping the sumac bark off of mm -hmm. it shortly after a burn. Mm -hmm. um, it was still black. Yeah. It speaks to really the higher quality or the, the change in quality of some of those plants that mm -hmm. the goats really like. And so if they're stripping bark off that sumac, mm -hmm. I mean, it's probably killing it, isn't it? I mean, I would hope so, right? It's, it's top killed for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So if they get all the way around. That's yeah. excellent. So the sumac, for those of you listening, is like that pretty red thing you see in the ditch, right? Mm -hmm. This time of year? Yeah. And it's not yep. pretty to you guys. Well, but I mean, like, you know, it adds to the fall color, but you see, you'll notice it more this time of year. Yeah. So this, so sumac, so we've got, so in the western part of the state, we have skunk bush sumac and then, or aromatic sumac. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. be a nicer yeah. name for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then in the, you know, in the eastern side of the state, we have uh, the smooth and the winged. And those, the sumac, um, I mean, it can be a great plant. It just can also be a plant that, that is, um, that can grow pretty, pretty thick. Um, and some, you know, some locations I've seen, you know, I've seen that, that cows don't really like to get in there to graze much. And it, it, um, it can grow back fairly quickly after fire. And so, um, you know, in these pastures, we're excited to see what the addition of adding something that's going to eat it, mm -hmm. um, will do because our cattle, you know, don't, aren't eating off, off of the sumac to any great degree. But the goats are <laughs> are spending some time with that sumac um, <laughs> on the you know as we top kill it with the fire and it starts to regrow from the base of those plants. They're eating on those new sprouts that are coming up, um, and so there's been pretty pretty big differences in the height of the plants that are growing back after fire with the goats versus in the pasture that have you know our, our cattle only and in the areas we have these exposures to to be able to measure this, but um, and so that that's exciting for us to just see. And then, you know, in the winter, we see a lot of that. Well, and even late summer too, right, Cooper? There's been some some bark stripping. I think I, th I think a lot of it will depend on what's available at each time. I think that about this year, I think it was about July, I saw some goats going back to stripping. And I think that likely corresponded with uh, kind of the peak of our grass nutritive quality mm -hmm. so the grass stopped being the best so they went back to went back to the sumac mm -hmm. but for the most part uh we see most of the sumac uh stripping happening in the winter time which makes sense because if it's a woody plant it's still actually alive yeah mm -hmm. so yeah that's an important point to make that you know our grasses and our broadleaf plants die back to the ground every year even the perennial ones the ones that live for more than one year we, we say that the perinating material, there's 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 none that's above ground, basically. All of that, it dies back to the ground every year and then will regrow from the base. But that's not true of all the woody plants. We have um, all these shrubs and trees and stuff that, of course, are alive. Um, uh, and the 
above ground material stays alive during the winter. And so generally the quality of those plants is much higher during the winter than what they could get from a, you know, a grass plant that's died back to the ground. That's such an interesting point. I'm sitting here thinking, well, duh. I mean, they're still growing. Like that's, that's such a good point. So the goats are just so much smarter than cows to take advantage of that. <laughs> well, they've got teeny tiny little mouths. Yeah, that's true. Yes, the, the biology or the makeup of that animal is quite a bit different, so it lets them do that. They're definitely smarter. Yeah. <laughs> I will not take offense. I think all ruminants are cool. So um, so it'll be so cool after, I don't know, is the Prairie Project for five years? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Okay, so the grant goes on for five years. So at the end of that, it'll be so cool to see the differences in mm-hmm. your pastures. You might have to move somewhere else because they'll be so nice. The research stations will be saying, oh, no, you need to go somewhere else. These are too good for you now, <laughs> probably. So you you were very successful the first year with kind of the economics of the goats. Um, just briefly tell us a little bit about how you came out in the end because you had to purchase the goats. You mm-hmm. had you guard dogs, and um, we'll talk about those in the next episode, but so how how did it did it work out? I think it I think it worked really well. Uh, and one thing, when I tell you this number here in a second, uh, let me preface it with this: we got our does bought right before kind of this recent spike in prices. So so that helps us. Mm-hmm. We got them cheaper than somebody could go buy the same quality right now. But after one year of kidding, uh, we paid for almost 90% of all of our animal costs, and that includes all the does that we bought, um, the bucks that we bought to service the does, our livestock guardian dogs, and then our three token donkeys, which are no, no longer with us. <laughs> the token donkeys. <laughs> now, that didn't work out. No, it didn't work okay. out the greatest. Yeah. What are the future plans? The plan is to continue with the patch burn grazing with the goats. Um, you know, we for sure, for sure through the end of the study, but we, you know, we're, we're pretty committed to continuing with goat research um, on these pastures, especially we, uh, we invested some, some money in infrastructure to put in the, the mm-hmm. fence and stuff on these pastures. And, and there's been some really interesting research that looked at um, when you add other livestock species, when you have more diverse lives, um, livestock species grazing pastures, that you can actually increase diversity in pastures, and that can be beneficial for a lot of our wildlife and stuff. And so we're we're excited to kind of maybe tackle some of those questions in the future um, as we monitor kind of what's going on with the woody plants. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's the plan at this point. We're we're excited with what we've found so so far, and we need to be doing this during a drought too. So we need to be able to tell people what happens in those situations. And and so um, we just got to continue on and yeah. see what we find. Well, I'll be excited to kind of hear your story as we go along. I think it's mm-hmm. just something new for producers. Not necessarily new, but it's a different mindset. Mm-hmm. And I think. You know, in agriculture, I think we need to change our mindsets over time and just to adapt. And yeah. I think that's just very unique project. And so thank you so much for joining me. Yeah. Sure. Yep. Thank Sounds you. good. If you guys have any questions, we'll have um, we'll have some information in the show notes. But with that, we will catch you next time. We hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. 
If you would like to hear more or follow up on the discussed topics, please reach out to your local county extension agent. OSU has a presence in all 77 counties with the educators eager to assist you. Also, please consider checking the description for links to our social media pages and further information pertinent to the conversation. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon.